0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, September 18th, 2012. This is episode 981 of the Survival Podcast. I am back from North Carolina the a self-reliance expo. Uh, as always, when I go out and do things like this, it was an amazing, wonderful time meeting lots of great people. And it was tiring, man. I mean, just, just talking to people, once you get up to like the 100th person you're talking to in about two hours, you do start to get tired. Uh, but it's so worth it because meeting people, hearing their stories, and uh, two nights of hanging out with folks at uh, two different pubs, Really, really cool, um, and doing the presentations was great. The whole thing was amazing, but while I was gone, I wasn't slacking. I wasn't just uh, up on stage presenting and hanging out, looking at cool stuff at the expo and talking to people and drinking beer and eating a little bit of pub food and kind of throwing out the paleo thing for a couple days, uh, which I did actually okay with except at the pubs. Uh, it, I was doing research too. And one piece of research I did was a book called Just Enough, Lessons in Living Green from Traditional Japan by a guy named Asby Brown, uh, which was recommended to me by Ben Falk when I was up at his um, PDC that I guess lectured at. I read this book primarily um, on the plane going to uh, North Carolina and then coming home. Read it cover to cover. I think there's about five pages in the back that I have the uh, the, the cover around that I haven't actually finished up on yet. I pretty much read the whole book. It led to a show today, and uh, I think it's going to be a great show. And the reality is, I could probably do 20 shows out of this one book. That's how awesome it is. It's a pretty amazing book. So today's show is actually called Lessons in Sustainable Living from Japan's Edo Period. Edo is how it's pronounced, at least the best I can do in Japanese. It's spelled like Edo, E-D-O. Really cool stuff. Be with that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. You know your gun, no ammo equals expensive club or barter item at best. A gun without bullets is pretty much useless, other than, like I said, maybe as a club or a barter item. And you don't just need ammo so that if you want to put food on the table or protect your family, the ammo's there. You need lots of ammo because you need to train with that weapon. Because the third part is the training. It's kind of the trifecta. Training with the weapon, possessing the weapon in the first place, and having the ammunition to run the weapon. Well, you need ammo for all of that to be functional best place I know to get your ammo in large quantities so that you can do a lot of training is BulkAmmo.com. Specifically, your common calibers, your 9mm, your forty Smith & Wesson, your five five six, your .762, .45 ACP, that stuff. Check them out today. Great pricing. Remember, they also have a discount program for you guys that are part of the member support brigade. So make sure you check your benefits section before you go over to bulk ammo and buy your ammo. Next up today, MERSradio.com. MERSradio is awesome stuff, guys. It allows you to combine secondary communications and security into one package, Really, really awesome stuff. Rob is a great guy. He'll help you out, help you figure out what you need. Knows his equipment cold because he only carries a small segment of equipment. And uh, check him out today. MERS-radio.com They also do a discount for the Members Support Brigade. So make sure you check that out as well before you buy. Check out TSP Copper for really cool copper medallions. Great ways to spe- spread the message about the Survival Podcast, the Second Amendment. Ron and Rand Paul, we have a Physical representation of the Bitcoin. If you can think of it, we probably have it at tspcopper.com. Remember, the pricing is for rolls of coins, not individual coins. Somebody got confused by that and thought we were charging them 30-something bucks for a one copper coin. We don't do that. They come out to less than two bucks a coin. Uh remember you also get a discount on those if you're member support brigade. So I'll throw in at the end here. If you are not yet a member of the member support brigade, please consider joining. You'll support the show at 20 cents an episode. You'll get lots of great discounts like the ones you heard about today and about 34 other vendors to do and content that's available nowhere else. You'll get over over $150 worth of free ebooks the day you join as well. Military Law Enforcement Law Enforcement Peace Corps uh, and First Responders like Paramedics, Active Duty, or Prior Service. You email me before you join, I'll send you a special discount code for the Members Brigade to thank you for your service. With that, let's get into today's show. So, again, I was up in uh, in Vermont, and Ben's like this awesome guy, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ben Falk. And he while well, I'm sitting there working on my computer to make sure I'm answering you guys' emails and all, he's showing me all kinds of stuff that he's bought, stuff that he's bought because I've recommended it, and stuff that he's recommended for me. Two of the coolest recommendations that he gave me that I had not heard of before was number one, a magazine called Acres. I've already subscribed, haven't got my first edition, but I did look at his most recent uh, edition of Acres. It is an amazing magazine. It's something you might want to consider, again, Acres, like you know, 40 Acres, so Acres Magazine. Uh, again, haven't gotten a copy in my hands permanently yet, and I was really busy up there, so all I got to do was skim it, but way, way, way information rich. The other thing he put in front of me was a book called Just Enough Lessons in Living Green from Traditional Japan. And I didn't really get to read it, but I looked at the illustrations, and a lot of them are from Edo or Edo period um, guidebooks. Traditional drawings that explain exactly how they did, what they did, and really breaking down this society into about three main categories the peasant farmer, the peasant townsperson, and the samurai, with a little bit at the end of what you would call the noblemen. I'm not going to go into them today because it was very brief about them, just to let you know how they lived uh, in comparison to the rest of the people. I'm going to go through some lessons today, though, um, that I took away from each of the three primary sections. Again, the peasant farmer, the peasant townsperson, and the samurai. You might be surprised at how a samurai lived. It wasn't as uh, glamorous as we might think, but it was a life of luxury, compared to the way that other people might have been living. Yet most of the people in this time were fairly well off especially compared to Europe. Let's talk a little bit about this Edo period. What this what this was. Now, this is a period uh, you know in the history books from 1603 to 1868. It was largely a very stable period and it would be at the end of what I would call Japan's feudal era. So this is a point where they had these strong structured societies Samurai and the nobles and the peasants just like they did in Europe with some differences but that same strata right and certain barriers that almost no one ever crossed almost no one ever went from being a peasant to a samurai at this point and samurai would only move up maybe over time so much in rank in their family and they weren't going to move up to nobles and then you had the shogun at the top the the, the head guy right so that's this period that we're talking about. There was a lot of economic growth in this 250 years. The, the, the society boomed, and all it was like a rising tide floating all boats. There was prosperity for what people expected anyway, because when I tell you some of the houses they lived in, you might be like, that's not prosperity. But to the people, they had prosperity at all levels. They had this strict social order. They had isolationist foreign policies. They didn't deal with pretty much anybody. And they also started to increase environmental protection and that was very, very important because they had really taxed the environment by that point to a point where it was going into decay. So the environment was beginning to literally break down, and they put in certain controls, some of them very draconian, some of them stamping on individual rights, but what they felt was necessary at the time to put control into things. Um, it was really kind of an amazing period of time, and this is what I think... I get out of this beyond what most people would. The self-sufficiency and self-reliance of this nation coupled with the isolationism. It's something that I'm not saying we should go be isolationist. A lot of people think that because I'm a non-interventionalist, I'm an isolationist. Those two are not synonymous with each other. But what we learn here is that these people, while isolationists, were able to provide for all their needs, and very few people starved in in during the Edo period in Japan. Even the poorest people had places that they could go to earn a living or find food, and not not really by begging or anything like that. I'm sure there were people that were really, you know, eking out an existence, but yet they were able to do it, and they were able to move into an upper layer for themselves. So the person eking out an existence as a peasant townsman, could become someone who fixed shoes or became a carpenter through apprenticeship or many other things. The apprenticed farmer who didn't own his own land could save and have, and there was upward mobility even within this class system. So even though a person might be confined to you're going to be a peasant townsperson, you're not going to be a samurai, they could move all the way from someone eking out an existence in a single generation up to a well-to-do merchant family. And it was up to people to work that out. And yet with all of that, even with the isolationism, there was enough food for everybody. Now people were abused and used. Before I start going into kind of what this was like for people, uh, I also want to tell you that Every one of the lessons I'm going to give you today could probably be told from the viewpoint of one of the other people. So when I give you a lesson from the peasant farmer, it could probably be told from the view of a, of a farm person or a samurai. It's just the view that I've expressed that I've chosen to express. And then there's hundreds of things in this book that I'm not going to cover today. Uh, I'm not even really going to get into how the timber was managed and how the timber was selected, and how the timber was shipped. That could be a show alone that would teach us amazing things about forest conservation, forest management, and some things like that. I do want to kind of just give you, right at the beginning, how people lived. A peasant farmer that owned land might own as much as, say, 2.5 hectares of land, which would be about six acres, to put it in perspective, but many more were more likely to own one to two acres, and often they owned a little bit of land around their house, and then they farmed fields that they had to travel to every day that weren't right where their house was because of things like the hydrological cycle and making sure there was irrigation and things like that. So generally, yeah, there was some farming around the house, around the farmhouse, but if they own sizable tracts of land, those tracts may not be there. They may have to walk to and from their fields every single day. But that was the kind of land ownership we're talking about. And many farmers were tenant farmers, or they had to lease a piece of land from a landowner, or they worked basically as a servant for another peasant farmer because they didn 't have enough money to own their own land, and there were very tight controls on birth i won 't get into it, but there was basically infanticide once a family got to a certain size a midwife the way it 's phrased in the book would send it back all right I know that's that's not so that 's something that obviously i 'm completely opposed to morally but what I'm trying to point out today is I'm not trying to give you anything out of this book with moral judgment uh, except to how it applies to us today. I'm just telling you what happened because it's history and there's no sense trying to rewrite history. But that was the life there uh, on, the, on the land ownership. A peasant townsperson uh, might live in a house or an apartment was more likely that they were renting with a floor space of around 12 by 16 feet. And that might be a, a husband, a wife, and a couple kids that would live in there, and then they would have this little dirt floor area out front where their kitchen was. That was only maybe about three feet wide by about you know uh, by eight to twelve feet wide. So three feet wide by eight or three feet deep by eight to twelve feet wide. A lot of these people didn't even have a twelve by sixteen place. They might have uh, a nine by sixteen roughly place, and these are. I'm giving you feet, but they had their own system of measurements based on basically the, uh, the tatami mats that they laid on the floor, the straw mats that you maybe have seen people demonstrate slicing through with a samurai sword. So that was like the typical mid, mid-level. This would be considered not an impoverished person that would live in this small space, um, but this would be considered a person uh, of, of middle class middle-class peasant, uh, townsperson, somebody that might be a carpenter or some other type of tradesman, and a good one, not an apprentice, someone who's kind of moved up. That would be what they moved up into, a 12-by-16-foot apartment. Sometimes, if they were lucky, there was a second loft floor or something like that for them. And, of course, a merchant could have a, a considerably sizable uh, larger place, but it would probably be no more than twice that size, which is still way smaller than even what we consider a very small home today. Uh, that peasant farmer might have a house of around 800 square feet, just to make it simple. Uh, but that peasant farmer could have quite a large house or quite a small house, but they would have, like, one sleeping room, all right? Now, your samurai who lived in, uh, mostly by this time, there were very few samurai living out in the farms and the countryside. Most of them had moved into the city. All of them were required to come into the city under kind of the, 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 the influence of their lord uh, for at least one out of every two years. So many of them eventually stopped going back and forth and sold off their lands and moved into the town. Now, they were given the best land in the town and far more space. But the mid-ranking samurai. so understand, samurai was not like, okay, you're a samurai, so you're a nobleman. Samurai had certain privileges and status with it. One was you got to be armed, you got to carry a sword. If you weren't a samurai or a nobleman, you weren't going to carry a sword right you had to, and you had a family name that was granted to you, and you received a salary that was paid in rice okay and I'll get into what where the rice came from in a little bit and then you were given a place to build your home, but you had to build and maintain your home from your own income, and some of that would be rice that you would receive that you would sell back off because you would receive far more rice than you needed for your family all right but this this extravagant. If we're living in town, this was opulence and extravagance compared to the guy living in the 8 to 12 foot by 16 foot deep one room apartment, right? This opulence was a whopping roughly 1,000 square foot home on about a quarter of an acre. That's how the samurai lived. So I, I just wanted to kind of give you that up front before we go into these individual lessons. So the peasant farmer would actually own more land out in the countryside than the samurai would living near town or on the edge of town or in town. And there was a huge land disparity. The samurai made up, uh, if I remember right from the book, well, I got the book here sitting here, so let me let me read it off to you. The commoners made up about 44% of the total population, but they only got 18% of the land. Samurai actually made up about 50% of the total population. A lot more samurai than people would have thought. But this was in a city, and this was samurai from all over the country brought into these major cities with the Idaho being the biggest city and housing the most samurai. About 50% of the samurai uh, of the total population of the city. But they had um, 30% of the land. So it's almost an even split, and the samurai get 30% of land, and the commoners get 18. And the samurai get the best land as well. The uh, The noblemen which is the uh, daimiago, is the best way I can pronounce it, daimiago. There were only about 200 of them, uh, and they got about 33% of the land. Uh, Temples would take up about 13%, and then miscellaneous common areas about 6%. So the samurai got a huge, large portion comparative to their population and the best land, but yet they were sitting on about a quarter of an acre. And these noblemen, in the book that you learn... About you realize that even though they had these three huge estates, so each one would have an upper, a middle, and a lower estate within the town, and they had huge tracts of land, on those tracts of land were huge sets of barracks, and they were required to quarter troops on their land. So even even the the, the wealthiest of the wealthy with these large tracts of land had to accommodate others, and many of the samurai had servants that were also samurai, but they were samurai who had not yet... Uh, inherited their father's house or acquired enough mobility, upward mobility to build their own homes yet, and they would be quartered at the barracks, and then they would go to their master's house every day to act as a servant, even though they were a samurai. So I I think we get a very twisted view of what this might have been like with movies and things like that here in America, that the samurai were really upper middle class is the best way to look at it. And they lived a lot, with a lot less than what you would call lower middle class typically live with today. If you talk about a lower middle class person that at least is doing well enough to have a home, to have a house. Uh, it's really interesting. But the bigger takeaway, I guess, is to understand that the peasant farmer who lived out in the country could own more land than a samurai who lived in the city. Does that remind you of anything today? So let's start out with some lessons here. Lessons from the peasant farmer. One of the bigger lessons I really realized was when done right, when organized right, when you use proper gravity feeding or irrigation, you grow the right crops, which was mainly rice. There was some other things grown. Cotton was just starting to be grown. Silk was being cultivated using, you know, uh, silk farms, but it wasn't, you know, like we cultivate cotton, obviously it was mulberry leaf being fed to the silkworm, but it was very little silk for the commoner to ever purchase. In fact, even if he could have the means, he might not have the permission. But mostly what they were growing from an agricultural standpoint was rice. And these farmers on two to six acres would have to surrender 25 to 50% of their rice as tax. Think about that. 25 to 50% of their rice they would have to give away as tax. Then, after they gave away 25 to 50% of their rice, depending on, and that was really based on how good the year was. A really good year, they gave more than a really poor year. Uh, and sometimes vice versa. They would take more in a poor year because if everybody had a poor year, there was a greater demand and need for rice in the city. They have to pay the samurai their salaries in rice. We have to provide rice for the people that live in the city. It was their primary food source. But even after that, with two to six acres, most of these farmers had enough rice to bring into their home for personal use to feed their family and often a small extended family for an entire season. You really got to think about that. Two to six acres, and they're growing enough rice to feed themselves, their wife, one or two children. And often a, if, if a father-in-law had deceased, the, the, the mother-in-law, or vice versa, and oftentimes a brother. Because a farmer might have a brother, and they would usually limit the household to about two children, could control population during this time. And the second brother may not even have a family. Because the firstborn had the right to, to to continue the family, and the secondborn might live as a bachelor his entire life. The same on the female side, so the, the the sister of the wife might live in the in the household. But that's a fairly large number of people to be feeding off of that land when you're giving up twenty five to fifty percent or more of it, and yet they did it with with, with uh, a, a lot of really amazing. Uh, technique, and because it's what they had to do. The next one is that in some places, livestock are not sustainable. We hear from people all the time, and, and the author of this book is a greenie. He's a greenie-weenie. He absolutely believes in the cult of global warming, and uh, some of the statements that he makes about the lessons that he t- takes away from each one of his own segments, uh, I think are a little short-sighted. And I think in this case, he's both right and wrong. So his whole point is that meat and livestock are not sustainable. I think that's bullshit. I think that livestock are extremely sustainable in certain areas. I think in highly steep slope mountains of feudal Japan, when you're trying to feed a city of of 1.1 million in Idaho, off the backs of peasant farmers who also have to feed themselves while feeding the city and have what they produce not just distributed to the city, but distributed apart from income, so it's taken from them in the form of taxation. With that limited land mass and with that much expected out of it, yes, livestock are, are not very sustainable. So they ended up in a situation where oxen were even rare to move large loads. So humans and water were used to move heavy loads, and I think that's true. And I think that there's a big difference between trying to cram as many people as lived in Japan even at that time uh, during the Edo period and looking at something like the Great Plains of the United States and realizing that they would actually be in better shape if they were used for growing meat versus growing corn and soy. So I think that we have to take away from this lesson on how this country did things that it's not that meat and livestock are not sustainable, but there are areas in which it doesn't make sense to use them. There are areas that are not sustainable with them. Or there are areas where their concentrations need to be in much lower numbers because the environment is not as conducive to them. If you think about it, there's not a lot of of large herbivores native to Japan. There's some Japanese deer, I believe, but there's not, you know, Japan never had anything equivalent to the American buffalo. Uh, I I don't think they had native water buffalo living on Japan. I could be wrong about that, but I, I don't think so. I don't think that large herbivores are native to Japan. But if we move over into the mainland and in China and the lower subtropics of Thailand and Vietnam, you, you have native water buffalo. You move over into you know Europe and you have the, the great white ox that, that basically was the, the stock that created so much of, of the farm and the pig. You have these. and then as you move out into Africa, you have the huge her, you know herds of herbivores, wildebeest and, and, uh, and cape buffalo. And I think that we find that there are places that are conducive for larger herbivores, and there are places that are not. And I think that one of the big lessons here isn't that it doesn't work; that it, it's that it doesn't work everywhere, and that we need to be very careful about where we do things and where we don't do things. I think that, that we learn two edges here. One is, yeah, on steep mountainsides, it doesn't make sense to try to run cattle or grow grain to feed cattle to feed people. That doesn't make sense at all. But the other thing is when you have a huge native grassland savanna that constantly reestablishes itself, destroying it to plant corn doesn't make sense either. So I think that this author, who I think is a brilliant guy and did a great job with the book, gets short-sighted because when we get attached to something, we become myopic. And I think that when we back up, we can see both sides of something. So that was a big lesson for me. The next one is something you won't find to be anything earth-shattering hearing it come from me, is that forests must be preserved. What we learned specifically when we look at the peasant farmers in this book is there were lots of forested land out there, and that, that people were literally banned from. You couldn't even go in there at certain times. So it might be a 10-year period you can't even go in there. And then there might be a period where they would come in and they would do some selective timber cutting, and some of it would go to the townspeople because they needed to be build houses too, and a farmer without a house can't feed you. Uh, But most of the timber was then floated down a series of of canals and and rivers and things like that to the city and used for construction in the cities. And there was even a tree census. They knew every tree. Every single tree on these protected areas was accounted for, known, and its growth was tracked. They did farming of the trees. And the peasant farmer would have to do service certain times of year, go out and plant trees. And they protected trees that were kind of the – the really highest quality timber, they protected them the most, and they created markets for them so they would have value in preserving them because many of them had been lost due to clear-cutting. Sound familiar? I mean, all the stuff these guys were dealing with in the 1600s are, are things that we ended up dealing with in the 18 and 1900s. But this wasn't just about timber. As they started to do this, they realized that the agricultural lands that were on slope and you know terraced and rice paddies and all this other stuff on the lower slopes were dependent upon the forest on the upper slopes to ensure that you didn't get erosion, to ensure a continuous supply of water through the water table and through the streams and creeks and things like that. If we clear-cut the whole mountain, the creeks dried up and went away. So the forest preservation isn't just about the harvesting of timber, but it's also about the preservation of the landscape as a whole. And the, the the houses these people had were built in a way that they were designed that like when the house was shot. It was just like, this house is done. There's nothing else we can do with this house. That it could actually be disassembled and many big pieces of timber reused. They standardized on, on lengths and measurements and certain types of joints so that even if some of the rafters of the roof were no longer any good when the house was brought down, the main beams could be used to build a new house and every single thing was recycled. Like I'm saying, I'm actually segueing off my outline because there's so much in this book. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the next one is that irrigation can be accomplished 90-plus percent with gravity. Uh, we don't need to be pumping water all over the place. We don't need to be using lots of energy to move our water around. Here's the caveat. With really wide-scale public planning, one of the things that was done here that was an actual benefit of government, because there's definitely some... Uh, oppression by government here and I, I think a lot of it even that seems oppressive was almost necessary but it's because they damaged things so bad that they had to come in and, and be heavy handed to put it back into a stable environment but this was one that made sense a farmer would not just decide how he was going to irrigate his land the entire community would get together and figure out where his property fit in the irrigation sk- scheme and what ended up happening was there was water for everybody. It was just a matter of, it wasn't like, you know, like in America with first rights to the water and the person at the top of the hill could hold all the water. They could take as much as they needed and then it was decided, well, which way is the best way to push this water off of this property down to the next and down to the next and down to the next so that all of the fields could be irrigated. And they were able to do it about 90% with gravity. And then they would build things like pumps, so if they needed to actually move water up a couple feet, they could put a thing in there, and they basically it looked almost like a, an exercise bike, So the guy would walk on it. So there wasn't a seat where you'd pedal, and they'd put it in there, and a guy would get up on there and walk on it like a treadmill, and it would pump water up into the next level. And that level was being used smartly so that whatever you know, float a paddy up there, as it was allowed to, to matriculate down, that it started a new hydrological cycle of its own. And I think that that's something that we could learn for if we weren't trying to make everything flat, square, or round, right? Everything is flat, and we either make it in a square or we make it round for the round irrigators. If we thought about it, we could probably do a lot more in America with our farmland if we would plan at a higher level. And that doesn't mean taking away the land rights or the autonomy of the landowner. It just means planning out the distribution better, and it won't work everywhere. But where it will work, it's something we should probably look at as a society. And that was done through government. And as a libertarian, you know, my view on government, less is better. But there may be places where local governance can come in and society can come together with local governance to accomplish these things at a higher level. And that's how this was done. This wasn't the federal government. This wasn't the shellgun up in Idaho sending out his mercs out to the society and saying, do this. Pretty much their interaction was, you guys give us our taxes, you run your own society, do it right because we're going to come and we expect our rice every year. I mean, that's, that, that's how that was. I'm not saying that's good, but I'm saying that they had far more autonomy than most of us would think in a feudal society and far more autonomy, honestly, than we do today. There was local government. There was basically a village headmaster and basically a forest uh, warden. And several other positions, but all of these people didn't have these highfalutin positions and then live off the back of society. They were all farmers. They were maybe the farmer that owned the, the two and a half, three hectares, you know, six acres or more. They were maybe the more prominent families, but they had to live the same way of the people that they were overseeing. They had to pay the same taxes and rights. They had the same concerns. And I think that we can learn a lot from developing local governance with more autonomy from this as well. And to me, that's very libertarian. Because unlike feudal Japan, where I have my little piece of land here, and if you guys start doing stupid crap I don't want to participate in, I couldn't just pick up and leave back then. I mean, and and there was some good from that because families worked out differences. Because you were growing up next to a family that grew up next to your family for three, four, five, six generations. So you had to solve problems. So that was good. The bad was this: this containment. Like you can't go anywhere else. You can't just go out and buy some land somewhere else and start a new farm, or start a new society, or whatever. You can do that today. So I think local governments is very local governance is very useful. if We stay away from HOAs though, guys, um, for solving big problems, uh, along with geographic mobility to go with it. That's the foundation of a republic. It's almost like. All these worlds can come together and be something bigger than than they are alone, like the sum is more than the whole of its parts. The next thing is you would often think that somebody that had a dirt floor in their house, even a, a dirt floor in a part of their house, would be poor. But they had an area called the doma. and I might be saying that wrong. It might be doma, it might be duma, I don't know, but doma, D-O-M-A. And the farmers had large ones. Almost everybody in in this society had some level of this dirt floor. But the farmers would have a large one because they would keep all their tools in there. They would keep their larger stove in there. Um, They would do a lot of their work, like repairing or sharpening tools and things like that in there. And a tool was something you owned for maybe multiple generations before it didn't work anymore and got melted down and recycled into something new. But this dirt floor was hard-packed, mixed with lime. And it was a very comfortable space. And because it breathed in and out, it helped to cool the house. And it also helped to warm the house. It helped them to, to, to regulate humidity. And it wasn't considered a sign of poverty. In fact, if you had had a farmhouse in this period in Japan, and somebody would have come to your farmhouse and you didn't have a Doma and a sizable one at that, they'd ask you, what's the problem? What's wrong? Do you need help maybe building one? Because you need this. So, I I don't know that there's a huge place for dirt floors in modern construction, but there may be a place for more outdoor living space in modern construction that functions the way these domes do This is going to be, I'm going to tell you guys, this is a book you're going to want to buy. And when you buy this book, you're going to want to read this book, and you're going to want to listen to this episode and probably more episodes that I do about it again. And you're going to realize there's a lot of stuff in this book you're going to disagree with the way they did things. And you're not going to like, this is not a blueprint for utopia, but it's a history lesson in what happened and what worked and what didn't and what the consequences and benefits were. And we can learn from that. Um, and I already kind of covered this, but I want to say here at the end before I move into the peasant townspeople, high taxes are nothing new. Um, 50% of your production was taken, and it wasn't done the way it was done in feudal Europe. Feudal Europe... You would be, like a peasant farmer, would be like an indentured servant to a lord or a duke or something like that. They would never own that land. It would never be their land. They'd you have know, some little shack somewhere. They'd come work on that field every day. And they'd do what they were supposed to do. And at the end of it, they'd be given some piece of their production as payment. And the rest would remain with the duke or the lord or what have you. In this period of Japan, you owned your land. It was yours. And your property was not taxed. Your production was taxed. But you were expected to produce. If you were a farmer with two acres or five acres or hectares or however you want to call it, um, you were then assessed a rice tax. So if you're going to be a farmer, you're going to be a farmer and you're going to farm rice, at least with the majority of what you do. And the rice was then harvested and polished. Most of it was polished to white rice that went to the city, mainly because they said it tasted better and they knew it stored better. Those were the two big reasons. And this was a manual process. In another machine, you got to get on it like a Stairmaster. And it was like a mortar and pestle thing, and it would go up and down and beat the crap out of it and polish all the, the rice bran off of it. And uh, they would they would then pay in that white rice. And that white rice was as good as currency. Because a lot of it again was used to pay the samurai. The samurai would be given, you know, one hundred, I don't remember the name of the units, but each unit was basically enough to support a person for a year, is how they had figured it out. You know, so a low ranking samurai might get a hundred of those units, a high ranking samurai might get three hundred. And these were rights of their samurai family given to them by their lord, their nobleman, in the past as part of their promotion into the world of being a samurai. And the samurai would then take that and they would use it for their own household and they would sell off everything they didn't need into the market, which would flow into the economy of the city. Now, the government would take the piece that are in taxes and whatever wasn't used to pay into the uh, to the samurai salary and which then would be used to feed the soldiers, right? And then would be used to feed the nobles themselves. And then the surplus would be sold into the market to gain wealth, which would put it into the economy. And then the farmer would take all of the rice that he doesn't need for his own household for the year, all the surplus, and he would sell that into the economy. So this rice was making its way into the economy from three distinct levels to the, at the town level. It was coming direct from the farmer, it was coming through the government, and it was coming through the government after being passed through the samurai as a salary. And is that efficient? Not really, but it enabled all these public work systems that we'll get to in a, in a bit, at least some of them. But it, high taxes are nothing new. We're taxing the farmer uh, heavily even back then, even when he owned his own land, even when he had rights to his land. And let me be clear, the government of this period, from what I read in this book, respected those property rights. That farm would be handed down to the eldest son over and over and over. No one would come take it away from him. Uh, the village would respect it. Uh, the other farmers would respect it. It was his, and he had to maintain it and do what he pleased, but he just had to produce the rice and pay the tax. Again, I'm not saying good or evil here. I'm saying this is how it was. And in some ways, it might be a better arrangement than what a lot of smaller farmers have to deal with today. Because the property tax on the land sometimes makes it unprofitable to farm the land. But the only way to get the property tax break is a subsidy. The subsidy is through farming. And then you have to find what the government says. And now we're back to fuel Japan. So who knows? right? It's just that a lot of these things that we think of as modern problems were around in the 1600s. Even in Japan when it was isolated from the rest of the world. It tells you something about our human condition, doesn't it? Or doesn't it? Let's move into lessons from the uh, peasant town people. Um, I think one of the big lessons we get from there is what you need is far less than you think it is. I think if you told most people today, you could live a relatively happy lifestyle. You could have everything you need to survive. You could cook your food every day, wash your clothes, go to the bathroom, do all of that. Uh, you would have a pretty good relationship with your neighbors. Uh, you would have a strong sense of community. You would have time for recreation, education, reading, working as a tradesman, living in a 12-foot by 16-foot room with your entire family, with a little 3-foot by 12-foot strip out front where your kitchen is out on the outskirts of town, and you would do your laundry and hang it out in a community, kind of common area in between a couple other barracks or you know, apartment buildings, you want to call them that, uh, using the bathroom and community latrines, and when you needed a shower or a bath, you go walk within, you know, a few, uh, a few, you know, a few, few blocks in either direction, and you will find several public bathhouses. You go to a public bathhouse, pay for your taking your bath, take a bath three or four times a week, uh, like that, and and socialize with people while you bathe. Obviously, there's segregation between male and female, uh, and if you live that way, you could be relatively happy. And I, I'd say that maybe that's an overstretch because I don't know that I would be happy, especially knowing what I can have today by working for it and developing it. I I don't want to live that way. But these people were relatively happy, and I think the bigger thing is they were healthy. Um, There was far less disease and uh, plague and things like that in Japan than there was in Europe. Their water systems were clean. Their water was not used ever, ever, to move human waste. People went into a toilet, and there was two sides. There was for urine and for feces. And I know this isn't, you know polite dinner conversation, but it's reality. And you did one or the other. And one of the lessons is also put human waste to good use. And this could be told from any of the layers, any of the layers of society. Human feces was valuable. They called it night soil. And initially, as the city started to develop, people would pay to have it removed from their latrines. Eventually, as it took on more value, from being composted and used in farming, people wouldn't pay anymore to have it removed. They would give it away. And these merchants would come and farmers would come and collect it and take it back out to the countryside and compost and use it for fertilizer. And then eventually it developed so much value because there was so little livestock for manure that people were paid for their waste. So a guy would come to your house with a cart, a poop cart, right, And he would pay you for your waste. And the higher your level of society, the more you would get for your waste. Because your diet was better. So the waste of a samurai was more valuable than the waste of a commoner. Not because the samurai was considered more dignified, even though he was. Simply because his diet was a higher nutrition diet, and there was more nutrient in the waste. And if you told people like you could live like that and be healthy... And relatively content, I think they would think you're crazy in today's day and age. But the reality is, people did it and they were relatively happy. And, and it's pretty amazing when you think about that. And I think that one of the other lessons is we need to rebuild our distinctive neighborhood communities where a certain block or a couple blocks have their own identity. Like when, you know, and you saw that still, I think, in the 70s and 80s in Philadelphia where people would say, well, Where are you from? And they would say the South Side. They would say, "Well, I'm from over here," and like there was like if the other guy like, like had family over there, it was an instant kinship because there was this distinctiveness to it. And I think that's part of what made these people relatively happy and content with this small living space and with this kind of you know captured area of society. Yeah, if you worked really hard as a carpenter, you could become a master carpenter. Maybe eventually you or your firm or your company could become elite and work on the higher-end projects like the temples or something like that and make better money and and have a much bigger little apartment right? that was maybe twice as big. Or you could become a merchant. Or if you saved enough money, you could actually start building your own apartment buildings and charging rents. There was this upward mobility, but yet you were held into this peasant class or the samurai class. In fact, for many samurai, we'll get to this in a bit, but the samurai were more held into their rank structure, being mid- or low-ranking samurai. Uh, it was very little upward mobility for them. Where the, the 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 commoner, who had you know seemingly far less, could migrate all the way up to the upper end, could become that 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 fairly wealthy merchant, or or what have you. But it was this this community where everybody that lived in a certain area knew everybody else that lived in the area. Where if you came in as a stranger as somebody's guest, you weren't trusted at first because nobody was really worried that anybody was going to steal their stuff. But you were a stranger, so you were an unknown. And, and we've lost that. And I think that sense of community that you could walk outside and talk to your neighbor, right? We've, we've, so, we've so isolated that in the suburbs where like our, each of our, our lots is like a little bubble. And again, I'm not saying I want to live the way that the townspeople live. Actually, I think a great way to plan neighborhoods and communities you'll see is when we move to the samurai. That it actually is a very sustainable way with modern technology – to build a sustainable community. But there are things to learn from this, including the fact that we 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 you know we, we don't put our human waste to good use. Now, again, the author of this book is very much a greenie-weenie, and he thinks that we should all be composting our own manure at our own house and that we shouldn't be using water in any shape or form to move it away. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, a city like Hot Springs, Arkansas today, um, all of the human waste is taken to a treatment facility. The solids are separated out. The water is returned cleaner than it went in and able to be used for anything at that point. And all of the solids are extracted out and composted. And composted and mixed with trimmings and bushes from around uh, the neighborhoods from people dropping off the tree trimmings, uh, horse manure and straw that are brought in from the local horse track and many other sources. And so it's being done at a community level, actually a city level in massive scale. So that to me is something that's more likely to happen. But it doesn't mean that we can't figure out better ways to do it. One of the things that we, we might look at in the future is the separation of the different form. Number one, number two, right? Liquid versus solid in the first place. Because the the urine, the urea, is a very high nitrogen, and it's much easier to turn into uh, a, a fertilizer if it's separated out of the solids. And it it's something that can be done a lot easier. So I'm not against seeing your own waste. I'm just against how practical is it that we would change society that way to deal with their own waste on site. And again, we're in a point now in society where if we had taken technology forward with these things, where would we be? So maybe there is a way. Maybe the the, the modern composting toilets and things like that are so limited in what they do that we could be to a point that is much cleaner and much more attractive to people if we focus on developing that technology. I think some people are. Uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, fixing things when they're broke. And when they're truly broken, broken recycling them, I think, is a big deal. So, like, one of the things that would be kind of a, a really nice-to-have thing during this period in Japan would have been an umbrella. And you'd have your umbrella, and it would be used for rain. It would also be used to keep the heat off of you in, in the hotter parts of the months for shade eventually the fabric of that umbrella would degrade. And then instead of throwing the umbrella away, you would sell it to a scrap dealer who would take it to an umbrella maker who would take the material apart, salvage everything that was still good, and make a new umbrella and sell an umbrella in the secondary market that was a recycled umbrella, which would then go to a person who couldn't afford a brand new umbrella who would use it until it was shot again, who would then sell it to a scrap dealer who would take it back to the umbrella maker who would again And when it finally got to the point where, like, it just can't do it anymore, every single component of it could either be composted or burned as fuel or used, shredded, and broken up as mulch in an agricultural application. And even if it was burned as fuel, the ash was then converted into fertilizer. So every single thing went through that cycle. Most of the people would wear, basically, straw sandals that were made from rice straw. When somebody bought a pair of straw sandals back then, it wasn't like it was going to last forever. They would buy those straw sandals and they would know that within like three weeks they're going to need some work. And there were people that would sit out in the streets and would fix your shoes. And you would take your shoes and they would fix them for a small fee. And that was was a valuable person in the economy. They could make enough of a living to buy his little dwelling just like everybody else did. And then maybe you'd have that done once or twice. And at that point, you would buy a new set of sandals because they were very affordable because they were from recycled rice straw that was a byproduct of the agricultural production. And then the old shoes would be used as kindling and tinder or composted. So every single thing these people did, every single thing these people used was used over and over and over again. And when it couldn't be used anymore, it was recycled in some way back to the earth. And it wasn't a bad way to live overall. And When you hear how the samurai live, you realize we live better than they did, but there's some some real lessons here. Um, I think another thing is all of these cities were designed with walking in mind. It's the primary way people got around. The only people who could own a horse were samurai. You had to be a samurai to own a horse. If you were a samurai and you owned a horse, one of your your servants, or I can't remember, there was another word they had for it that was like basically uh, an apprentice samurai, like he was a samurai by birth, but he didn't hadn't come up in the world yet, would follow behind you and pick up all your horse's manure. And, and then the samurai would sell that manure or use it for their own compost for their own gardens that we'll get to in a bit. But that's how valuable the horse manure was. They, they, where Europe was dealing with these streets full of human waste that was being pushed around by water and animal dung laying in the streets. Japan had none of that because it was all too valuable. Um, I can't get into the the water system. The water system was amazing, made out of wooden pipes, easily fixed when something broke uh, to bring water to people, and then shallow drainage ditches that took all the wastewater back to the rivers and streams with no garbage in it because nobody used uh, any kind of toxic soap and no sewage went in there. So about the worst thing that would go in there maybe was fish cuts from the fish district. Uh, but I, I can't go into that today because we're already at almost 50 minutes and I haven't gotten to the samurai yet. But that's something that was was really cool. But the cities were designed with walking in mind. So these clean streets, even though they were muddy when it rained, because it was dirt, there was no paved streets. Uh, Where the whole city was designed so that everything you needed was close. So there were little cottage industries everywhere. So if you needed a clay pot repaired, you were never that far from where you could go get somebody to fix it for you. And if you got to a point where there was no way it could be fixed anymore, it just pounded up and dumped back into the earth. Or if you needed your shoes fixed, that sandal guy, he wasn't far away. Or you needed your pipe fixed because smoking pipe tobacco was a big thing. There were pipe repairmen. There was everything you could think of was within walking distance because there was so much need for this type of expertise. The next thing is um, create common areas. I think that's something, with, you know, we built a city park here or a town park there, but they're so far away from where we live, everybody has to get a car and drive to get there. Where in this, this period of Japan, there were common areas everywhere. Like, like I said, with the apartment buildings, generally you'd have two of them uh, that were very, very long, and they would have many of these people living in them, and then there'd be this alleyway between them. And that's where people would go dry their clothing, people would grow little gardens and things like that. But they'd be this 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 kind of little micro town within a micro town uh, where the people that lived in that little neighborhood would get together. And I don't think we need to go to that level, but I think that as we're building subdivisions for God's sakes, let's take three or four of what would be the lots and put a little park in. And let's not go crazy with it where we need some big HOA to maintain it, but something that that, that people can just maintain themselves. Uh, you know, maybe there's a, a small little amount that everybody pays every year just so that the if there's grass there it can be mowed. But pretty much it just looks after but just like a, a common area where kids can play. They don't necessarily need swings and all that other crap. Just an open wooded little area. That's, that's, o- that's open for anybody to go visit, anybody to go do anything with, and let the people that live there maintain it however they see fit. You might be surprised what they would do if they realized that it was really theirs and no one was going to take it away from them, you know, that it belonged to the neighborhood. And uh, so I think there's huge lessons in what we can do with common areas there. Uh, let's move into the mid-ranking ranking samurai. Um How many people out there really want five acres, ten acres? I know I do. I really do. I want about five acres. I want to be a peasant farmer in this scheme. If I'm going to be, if I was living in this period of time, I would have rather been a peasant farmer, uh, than just about any other, uh, position here. Maybe samurai, because I'm going to tell you how the samurai lived. It was like the suburbanite. Really, they were like the mid-tier suburbanite of the day. Again, they had about a quarter of an acre of land, but they were so self-sufficient. Their lord, who paid them in rice, also had to see to many of their other needs because they were there to defend the Lord. They were, by this later period in the Ido period, they were largely, the warrior thing was ceremonial. They weren't weren't doing the things they were doing in the 1600s by the time we got into the early 1800s, as far as the battles and the fighting all the time. It was largely ceremonial, but that was their role, and they were highly trained warriors, and they existed as that military arm of the nation. So, just like you have to make sure your soldiers are okay, you had to make sure your samurai were okay that's what they were. they were the soldiers. so, if a samurai was largely self sufficient in his home, he was less of a burden on his lord right his daimsho or whatever however the hell you say that word but but that was the theory that was part of why the samurai were actually encouraged, especially your mid low ranking samurai were encouraged hey, you guys need to take responsibility for yourself, and they live what the guy in the book calls a life of restraint. There's actually a level of opulence or a level of possession that was considered too much, that if a higher-ranking samurai or their lord would have come to their home to visit, which was quite an ordeal when it was done, that it would be considered you're living beyond your means. If you want to build another room, that's one thing, but, but extravagance for the sake of extravagance is, is really not a good idea. But it's amazing how self-sufficient they were on a quarter of an acre. Uh, when you would walk into their home, the whole courtyard would be walled off, so there would be a wall, so you wouldn't see the house. You'd come in through the wall, and then you'd see the house. And there were different ways into the house. Uh, a, a visitor, uh, a, a common visitor, would come in one way. Uh, the children and the wife would come in that way, too. And then there was a formal entrance for uh, a more esteemed visitor. And then there were these areas of the home that were, like, one of the biggest parts of the home was just for receiving extravagant guests. And you would pretty much not use that at any point in time because you never know when one's going to show up. And it always had to be perfect and ready for them. And then the house was able to be reconfigured in certain areas opened up and closed off. And your most esteemed guests were kept in these, like, pristine areas of the home. But the greatest honor would have been to be asked into the private area of the home. And that was where you would receive the, the family's probably best hospitality. But the the level of self sufficiency on this quarter acre was impressive. There'd be a huge garden, a huge garden on this this quarter of an acre. Probably you know a third or to maybe maybe I'd say twenty percent of the land used just as a as a single large garden. Uh, they would plant many trees, uh, both for ornamental and for food production. And over time, these entire samurai neighborhoods, would and this was not like a samurai house sitting in the middle of a commoner area. It would be like a, a samurai neighborhood sitting near a commoner neighborhood. So there would be a definite border between where these two classes in society would live. And some samurai, upper-ranked samurai, would have a very large home. But the majority of the samurai would, again, have these homes that were roughly about 1,000 square feet with a few rooms, and almost half of the home was specifically for entertaining, important visitors. So they were really living with around 500, 600 square feet of living space. So again, in many ways, when it comes to their their homes, they had less living space than a peasant farmer, even though they were a samurai. So it wasn't all glitz and glitter to be a samurai. But yeah, they developed this huge level of self-sufficiency there. One of the ways they did that is every samurai's backyard would have a pond, and for, for a fairly significant pond. And I think that we think of ponds today... And, you know, you're going to have like a half acre or more, but, you know, a pond that you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's say, 30 feet by 30 feet and somewhere in that range or distributed differently, but about that volume actually is a lot of water and allows you to grow quite a bit of edible fish. And every samurai backyard had that, at least one like that. And it was used for irrigation. Again, all of the water that was uh, that was left over from house usage was directed in channels down to the pond. This was the same, by the way, uh, the peasant farmer did exactly the same thing. They would have a pond and all of the water run off from the roof, run off from use in the kitchen, run off from anything where the water was been used would go in the pond. And you think, well, how do you not end up with a stagnant, disgusting pond? They didn't even have soap. They would wash themselves using rice bran as an abrasive, and it, it created no no real uh, environmental waste. And the samurai did this as well. And uh, another thing the samurai did, and all of these levels of society did this. We talked about the sandal repairman. Farmers often had certain skills. A farmer might be really good with fixing tools. So even though he's a farmer, he's also the guy you bring your hoe to if you need your hoe fixed. Even though most of the maintenance and repairs were something you would do in-house, there were some specialized layers that uh, there would be like a certain thing the farmer would do. Well, the samurai were big on this. One of the samurai's big um, cottage industries was the umbrella making we talked about. So even though there was this guy down in town who would buy your umbrella and take it to the recycling shop that would make the second tier umbrella, that first umbrella when it came out the first time would maybe have been made by a samurai. Samurai would also do things like, in a day and age where not everybody was able to write. The literacy rate was really high, but writing was a little bit more difficult. Uh, So you might go to a samurai to have him draft a letter for you so that it could be sent by carrier to another town to communicate with somebody else. So that would be something that the samurai might charge for, his writing a letter for you. Or teaching. Uh, A samurai that uh, didn't have a lot to do on a daily basis, maybe an older samurai that was well-educated, might set up a little school in his home and 10 or 12 samurai children may attend his house as a school and of course he would charge for that. These are just some examples but these guys didn't just walk around, twirl swords and tend their little gardens in the backyard. They had these other things they had to do because the rice salary generally wasn't enough for them to live the lifestyle that that they wanted so much but they were required to. If you were going to be a samurai, there were certain things and ways that your home would be kept so that when the higher-ranking official came over, you would be able to properly receive them. And if you didn't do that, you might find yourself becoming, once again, a townsperson and a peasant. And, of course, you didn't want to lose that status. But, again, one of the advantages that the peasant farmer had, one advantage that the townsperson had, the peasant in general, was they had more upward mobility than a samurai. A samurai that was, I don't know what the levels were. Let's just say there were 10. And I don't know if there could have been 20, there could have been 5. But let's say there were 10. And if you were a level 2, ever moving to level 3 was very difficult, if not unheard of. So wherever you were, you had to strive to maintain what you had or risk falling backward. There was not a lot of upward mobility there. But there was an extreme value on education, meditation, and relaxation. The, the entire property was designed to be meditative to be entertaining, to be a theater, so that the entire wall of a house might open to the garden and the sounds of the garden and the pond and the birds, so that when you were sitting in this home that obviously had no electricity or air conditioning, and you wonder, well, how did they deal with the hot summers? They would literally open half of the house or more and let the breezes flow through, and the houses were built with higher ceilings and with architecture that was designed to deal with heat and cold and to let light in. Right to let light in at different times of day and to make different parts of the house. Like if you were cold in the winter, there were certain parts of the house you could sit in that would see most of the sun to be warm. And if you were hot in the summer, there were certain parts of the house you could sit in that would be more cool. So you would move to the appropriate area of the home based on the climate versus trying to change the entire climate of the house. But from any of these positions, you could look out onto this little little quarter acre to maybe a more upper-ranking somewhere. I might have a half. Of an acre, a really high ranking samurai so I have an acre. Think about that when we're setting goals for ourselves as homesteaders, and that when you would look out at it, this surrounded with this wall, it would be like your own little area, and you could enjoy nature for what it was—have trees and shade and sunshine and water and animals, right? And this was an attempt to recapture what the samurai were at their roots. The samurai originally were the gentleman farmer that were brought into service as excellent swordsmen and migrated eventually from the country to the city. There's a lot of parallels to modern life there, is there not? right? Instead of the the swordsman who moved to the city, now we have the engineer that moves to the city, the programmer that moves to the city. And one of the things that struck me really wasn't gone deeply into in this book. It was an aside, but the sides are the things that I pick up on that I think other people don't. In the art of the samurai, there was always a story, a history. Uh, So so that when you looked at a picture, that a samurai hung on his wall. It wasn't just, oh, there's a picture of a lake, or there's a picture of a bridge, or there's a picture of a sunset, a painting of 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 a woman in kimono or something like that. The whole picture was designed to tell a story so that you could sit and contemplate it and think about many things and there's no TV. So one picture really had to be worth a thousand moving pictures, not just a thousand words. And the common theme in the decoration, in the pictures and the artwork and everything that was displayed by the samurai was the agricultural root of the samurai, the gentleman farmer, the lands. So the entire landscape in the suburban and climate, the pond, the little garden, the trees, everything there was a samurai trying to recapture what he truly longed for, his roots as a gentleman farmer out in the country. It was an attempt to recreate it and a constant longing expressed in the artwork to be something other than he was. Actually to be a lower class, but to have more. There's a lesson for us without changing society in that. There's a lesson there just in changing what we want for ourselves when we think about that. And we could take that lesson two ways. We could say maybe life in the, the burbs or the suburbs or the small town or the small village uh, somewhere in America today is what's for me. And I can do what the samurai did and recreate it, or maybe that's not right for me. And instead of longing for it, I need to go find it and build it for myself. And you know, I'm not here to tell you which which one of those to go for. What I am to tell you is what I took away from that was create what you're long for. Don't dream of it. Actually build it. Actually do it. If you can recreate it with that beautiful, you know, suburban homestead or urban homestead, if that's what you want. I mean, there's places I wouldn't do it just from a risk standpoint, but overall, do it. But if what you really want is to be out of that and you want to do it somewhere else, do it somewhere else. Because what we need to start doing in America again is building homes that we live in until we die. That's that's something we've lost so much of. That's why, that's why we have disposable neighbors. That's why sometimes we look at a neighbor we don't like and go, well, sooner or later, they'll move or will move, so it's not worth working it out. Where we start to put down roots again, maybe we'll start to solve our problems again. I said at the, at the uh, seminar that we just did, the, the Self-Reliance Expo, if you want the America that your grandparents lived in, start acting like your grandparents. And everybody applauded. I think we know that there's value there. And I think that was one of the big things that I took away from it. And then the other thing that I took away from the entire book, reading from how the, the highest to the lowest lived, is a recognition of what we actually have today. We have so much in comparison to to what a person even considered fairly wealthy had back then. The fact that we can flush a toilet, whether we should be doing it the way we do it or not, is is something we can decide. But the fact that we can do it, it is something that I don't think most people really have a true appreciation for anymore. The fact that most of us have a box on our wall somewhere with a dial or a button on it that we can say, make my house 72 degrees or make my house 68 degrees in the winter or make my house whatever I want it, and then a sound will happen, boom, and it'll occur. Is 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 something that no one would have ever thought of. The fact that the average, you know, quote unquote, lower middle class person today probably that owns a house probably owns a house with anywhere from 900 square feet up to about 1,500 square feet that has wall to wall carpeting in it, and a box that comes on with pictures that talk to us. And, and you read a book like this, and you realize, you know, you talk about the end of this period is the 1860s. It ain't that long ago. I mean, it's 100 years from the 1960s, and most of us have parents or ourselves were alive in the 1960s. So that's only 100 years away from that, that that's how these people lived. And, and I guess kind of it goes back to something I said earlier that I want to finish with. We have to ask ourselves, if we were to take the techno- technological evolutions of today and combine them with the common sense of yesterday where could we be with them now if we just didn't rely and you go, you know, I'm not the greenie weenie that wrote this book I'm not saying that we're going to kill the polar bears if, if your car has you know 1% more emissions but if we actually did think about the consequences of what we were doing and apply the technology to the traditional mindset and merge the two worlds instead of seeing them separate where could we go? I don't know and I don't think I have any solutions for society today but I think this is an awesome book and uh, I think if you read it, you'll get a thousand things out of it that I didn't even talk about today. And I'd really recommend it. Again, get the book. I will put a link in today's show notes for it. It's just enough lessons in living green from traditional Japan. Like I said, my biggest takeaway from it. Create what you long for. Don't just dream of it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't.